0: 5. It's page 978 in the nice hardcover ones. All right. Sunday after Easter. Yes. All right. We'll be in chapter 5, verses 1 through 6 this morning. Let's go ahead and read it together. We'll pray and then we'll dive in, starting in uh, verse 1 of chapter 5. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Let's pray. God, thank you for the chance to sit under your word. We humbly do so. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would work in each of our hearts, and do something today, and change our hearts. Lord, may we receive your words um, along with your grace and your empowering this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so I love that this passage this morning starts with therefore, because last week was Easter. Easter and it was awesome. If you were here, it was in the air, and I'm sure if you were at a different church, it was in the air. The joy of Easter Sunday is a beautiful thing, and we celebrated that we follow a person who is not dead, but alive today. So it's perfect that today we're jumping back into the book of Ephesians And we're starting a new series called Learning How to Walk. So in light of Easter Sunday, in light of what we've learned so far, how do we go about life? We need to learn. This picture kind of shows a a slack liner, which was popular back in like 07 to 09. I don't know if it's (laughs) still a thing anymore, but my friends used to do it. And yeah. And I tried like once, it rubber banded and like hit me, never again. Um, But how do we walk? In light of the resurrection, we're on the other side now. How do we do this? And of course, the therefore of this passage refers to what was immediately said prior. And if you look, it says, forgive one another as God in Christ forgave you, therefore. Therefore imitators of God and walk in love as beloved children. So it may as well say therefore because of Easter because of the forgiveness available to you imitate God and walk in love. Paul has used the illustration of walking already in the letter to the book uh, to the people of Ephesus and he especially uses it in contrast in contrast from the old life to the new life. So if you turn back to chapter 2 and look at verse 1, Paul writes, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And then if you fast forward to verse 10 of chapter 2, he says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And he does this again in chapter 4. If you move one more page, starting in verse 17, he says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. And then, fast forward, we arrive at today's passage. Therefore, be imitators of God, as beloved children and walk in love. Today we're gonna to look at walking in love. And next week we're gonna look at walking in light, as in verse 8. The following week, walking in wisdom, as in verse 15. And finally, walking in the Spirit, as in verse 18. Y'all probably don't remember learning how to walk, but you did. My daughter, Ella, probably doesn't remember learning how to walk, but she did, and it was hard. She actually didn't take her first steps until 18 months, and by that time, Anna and I were like, is this ever going to (laughs) happen? Like, we see all the humans walking on the planet, but this one doesn't seem to be getting it, (laughs) and so we were kind of worried, but eventually she got it. There were many occasions when she would rather have had us push her in the stroller than walk, which implies that walking implies effort. Walking implies that you have a say in the matter, that God wants you to participate in this thing. Even if He's with you, in you, empowering you, He wants you to participate. And it also implies a process. We're not talking about teleportation. We're talking about walking. To get from here to the light rail station, you have to take about, I don't know, 500 steps. And it's one step at a time. So what God is calling us to as believers in the risen Lord Jesus Christ is a journey that happens one step at a time. But what about walking in love as we're talking about this morning? What does it mean to walk in love and how do we do it? We get a pretty straight answer to what it means to walk in love here in verse 2. It means to walk as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. To walk in love means to walk like Jesus. A tall order, indeed. The Apostle John, who called himself the disciple whom Jesus loved, he describes it in this way. He says, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. And then later he gets even more specific. He says, by this we know love that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. So to walk in love means to live like Jesus lived life. But we're still left with the resounding question of how. How do we walk in love? How do we walk like Jesus? Let's reread verses 1 and 2. Paul writes, Therefore, be imitators of God, As beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So, firstly, as in these first two verses, in order to walk in love, we need to find our identity in the love of God. John also says in the same letter that we love because he first loved us. So our love, if it is to be truly of God and not self-made love, is a response to his love for us. So Paul says to be imitators of God. And this is the only time in Scripture that this word imitate has gone with the word God. But beyond that, in Scripture, we find a lot of references to Paul saying, hey, church, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And then, of course, the word follow is all over the Bible. But Paul says that basically the only way you can imitate God is if you're a child of God. Your your translation might say uh, imitate God as dearly loved children. I love that, that phrase. Dearly loved. That's that's an identity, an experiential identity. You are dearly loved. I love uh, in the book of Daniel, Daniel's this awesome prophet, kind of lay minister, but right in the thick of the um, kingdom of Babylon. And he serves God from, from teenage to his deathbed in Babylon. And And when the angel, you know, in the latter half of the book of Daniel, the confusing half, when he he comes to Daniel and gives him these revelations, he says, Daniel, oh man, greatly loved, and then kind of lays it out. And that happens on multiple occasions. So that's, that's where Daniel found his security, his identity. I am a man greatly loved, and we are dearly loved children. Now, You don't need to get goosebumps at that, even though that could happen, (laughs) because that's pretty awesome. But you do need to reckon that that is who you are now. You have been loved enough to be adopted into the very nuclear family of God the Father. The same Apostle John, he reacts to this reality and says, Behold, what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. Therefore, because you are dearly loved children, you can imitate him. There's plenty of children that I interact with on on a regular basis. None of them imitate me because they're not my children. My children imitate me whether they know it or not. They just can't help it, which is why, as a sinful human being, I need to be careful with how I talk around them, how I act around them, because they're going to imitate me, whether I want them to or not. My dad has plenty of mannerisms that I would like to not imitate, but I do. <laughs> it's just, it just happens, right? You imitate your parents. Your kids imitate you. It's because we are God's beloved children that we can imitate him. And what does it mean to imitate God? It means to imitate Jesus, like we see here in these verses, to pattern our lives around the way in which he patterned his life. He made time to be with his father, to regularly be in scripture, in prayer, in prayer in service, in community, in vulnerability, in power, in silence, in solitude. And lastly, of course, he sacrificially gave of himself for others. To walk in love, we need to, and because of Easter, because of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and subsequent giving of the Holy Spirit, we can imitate him. This is a permission slip. He says, be imitators of God. That means you can. We shouldn't read this and say, yeah, right. We should read this and say, oh, I can. Awesome. Now, we can't gloss over that these verses also describe how we became God's children. It says, Jesus loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. If you're not a Christian this morning, that's the gospel, the good news. You know, I'm sure you've heard that Jesus died, but did you know that Jesus died for you? That's the good news. The language of a fragrant offering here illustrates that the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf worked. It was pleasing to God, meaning it accomplished what it was supposed to accomplish. Because of Jesus' sacrifice, we have been set free from sin and ultimately death. And we're not just set free from our past sin. We're set free from the sin that is plaguing us today and tomorrow and next week. Because of his sacrifice, we don't need... We don't have to read verses 3 through 6 in condemnation and fear. But in permission, in power, in freedom, in joyful conviction. And it's because our identity has been forever united to Jesus' identity, like Paul says in Galatians, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So to walk in love, we need to find our identity in the love of God as his beloved children. So moving on in verse 3, he says, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. So secondly, to walk in love, we need to find our satisfaction in the love of God. I'm telling you now that each of these behaviors are signs that you're not finding your satisfaction in God's love for you. If you're not finding your completion in God's love, where are you going to go? You're going to go right here. Isn't that right? Let's take each of these sets of three. You know, Paul starts with uh, sexual immorality. Now, this is a very generic term. It's sort of the the broad term that means any sexual act outside of a loving, sacrificial, covenant marriage between one man and one woman for life. So, there are far too many words to describe what this term includes. It's anything outside of that. Which basically means it applies to us all what I will comment on is that the very fact that this word heads the list of what it means to not walk in love means that Paul disagrees with Seattle on anything regarding what it means to walk in love in general and in within sexuality in particular. Now, if you disagree with Paul, you're in good company. But he has some strong words for us and we'll get to that. So that's the first word, sexual immorality. The second word, impurity, often tags along with the word sexual immorality in some of these lists that Paul writes and other New Testament authors writes. So it kind of tags along, and so in most, most commentators think it basically modifies sexual immorality, immorality. So We see this word actually just a chapter prior in verse 19 of chapter 4, if we want to read that. He says, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. And so one idea that this word conveys is that of needing darker, more intense, more sinister versions or forms of sexual immorality to get the same experience. So, if you're familiar with porn addiction or have uh, experience with it, it's basically the phenomenon of what you use now, pornographically speaking, is maybe more intense than what you started with. And most of us who have had any dealing with porn addiction hate that. But, that's kind of how it works. And Paul is kind of, he's kind of alluding to that phenomenon here. So, the third word, covetousness or greed, is another word you could, you could put in there. It includes, but is not limited to sexual immorality. It has a monetary component as well. So, it's not just uh, sexual greed and lust, but it's, it's just greed in general. Um, as well as more of a nuanced word, covetousness, which is not a word we use a lot, um, but it's it's one of the Ten Commandments. It's the Tenth Commandment, you shall not covet, right? Um, And this basically means discontent and not being content with what you have and needing, wanting more and more. Or maybe saying, if only I had more of this, then life would be okay, then I would be okay. Or seeing your friend uh, get a promotion or a house or a new job or, or what have you, and instead of celebrating with that person, in your, in your mind you're thinking, I should have that. If only I had that, I deserve that, and I should have it instead of that person. So that kind of encapsulates those three So, I just want to stop here for a minute and just recognize that we're talking about sin here, and therefore we're talking about us. We're talking about me. Paul knows that. Remember that we are on the other side of Easter. Yes, we were, and we even are, sexual sinners. But Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, he says, he he basically lists the same list, and then he says, such were some of you. But then he goes on, he says, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So God found a way to thread the needle of ending sin without ending us. No easy task. Basically the hardest surgery ever done. How can I cut this out without killing the person? And that's what he did in Jesus Christ. That's why dealing with these sins in our lives, it feels really high stakes. Because it still runs deep. It used to be who we are, but it is no longer But thankfully, he has the tools to approach us, to convict us, to call this out in us in a way that only he can, with rescue instead of condemnation, with empowering instead of behavior modification. That's what the gospel offers. And it's such amazing news. Okay, let's keep going. The next set of three. And the next set of three are sins of speech. So he basically denounces three. He says, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking. So filthiness, foolish talk, and crude joking. So none of these words appear anywhere else in the Bible. And so we have to kind of look outside the Bible for kind of contextual meanings Uh, to these words, but basically, they mean what they say. Um, Basically, foul-mouthedness and dirty jokes and things like that uh, are out of place for a Jesus follower, and then Paul interjects an application. He says, none of this type of speech, but instead, let there be thanksgiving." And this kind of follows the pattern of the last chapter. If you look back, uh, starting in chapter verse 25 of chapter 4, he basically starts saying, don't do this, do this instead. Go away from this and towards this. Put this away and take on this. And so he kind of does that here. But it's a little bit interesting on why he chose Thanksgiving. Because, you know, he talks about filthiness and crude humor, those kinds of things. You'd think he would say... You know, no dirty jokes, only, you know, holy and pure speech or something like that. But instead he says, let there be thanksgiving, which is kind of a flip, flip the tables on uh, the subject. So why does he choose thanksgiving and not those other words? And it's because thanksgiving kind of gets at the root of what we're talking about. Thanksgiving goes deeper than just not looking at porn, or not swearing, thanksgiving reveals a heart that is responsive to God's generosity. All of these behaviors, these ways of being, show a lack of finding your satisfaction in the love of God. Finding what you need in the love of God. When you look for love or connection or intimacy in the wrong places, you end up at sexual immorality. When you feel like God's love and provision aren't enough for you and you need to take it into your own hands to get what you feel you need, you end up at covetousness or greed. When you need others to like you so you're willing to say whatever to to make sure they do, you might embrace crude joking as a way to make that happen. There are so many reasons we turn to these behaviors. But in order to be free of them, we need to return to finding our ultimate satisfaction in God's love for us. It's not enough just for me to say, guys, don't be doing this stuff. That's not going to work. We've all tried that. What we need to do is pursue something. And what we need to pursue is the love of God that completely fills all of those areas and, and fills those reasons why we pursue the things we pursue. So thanksgiving is Christianity 101. It, you don't have what it takes. God does. God gives you what, what you need, and you thank him. <laughs> that's, that's Christianity. None of us is righteous. None of us is good. None of us can please God on our own. That's the need. That's the bad news that you have to swallow in order to receive the good news. But the cool thing about thanksgiving is it's very practical. He doesn't say rather be thankful. He says rather let there be thanksgiving. Thankfulness is a feeling. Thanksgiving is an act. You can can give thanks without feeling thankful. And chances are, that'll probably help and turn the tables on the selfishness that's existing. So notice that Paul, in verse 5, he repeats the original three uh, of verse 3, but then he kind of, instead of talking about the behaviors abstractly, in general, he talks about the people who have embraced such a lifestyle. In verse 5, he says, for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous has no inheritance. And so, and then he takes it up a notch and, and adds the idolater word, which basically means all of these things mean you are worshiping Something other than God when he says that is an idolater there. So notice that Paul says these people do not have an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. So who is it, you know, in general that has an inheritance? It's it's the heir, it's the typically the child of the benefactor. That is who inherits whatever's coming to them. And so, rather than this being a sobering warning to us, lest we forfeit our inheritance, however, conviction of these sins, I'm sure, is Paul's goal, as well as, I dare say, the Holy Spirit. But rather than this being a warning, lest we forfeit this, Paul is saying, as beloved children of God, this is not your trajectory. This is not who you are anymore. These people, the people who have given themselves up to these things, that's not who you are. So why would you fall in with them again when you've been freed? You've been rescued. You've been placed on an entirely different path to walk. And if you find yourself going back to these things, what we need to do is return to who we truly are. Beloved children of god finding our satisfaction in the fact that we are beloved so paul then finishes off in verse 6 he says let no one deceive you with empty words for because of these things the wrath of god comes upon the sons of disobedience so in order to walk in love we can review we need to find our identity in the love of god we need to find our satisfaction in the love of God. And lastly, we need to find the truth in the love of God. Paul challenges the Ephesians here not to believe anyone who would tell them that these sins are no big deal. And many of us Seattleites read these words of Paul's and we're apt to agree with those who say that a God who who makes these kinds of requirements or judgments is not a God of love? Why would a God of love tell me what I can or can't do, especially with my sexuality? Why would a God of love bring wrath upon those who don't obey? These are good questions. They're really good questions to wrestle with. I guarantee you, if you are not wrestling with those questions, someone very close to you is. Wrestling with hard questions is biblical. Just read the Psalms. And I can't give you foolproof answers to those questions today, but what I can recommend is you go straight to Jesus, at least for input. How does he view Scripture? How does he view sin? How does he view the wrath of God, the judgment for sin? In Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus, one of the Pharisees that Believed in him, but kind of like didn't want anyone to know about it. So we talked to him at night. Um, Jesus lays out the status of those who take on Jesus and those who don't. Uh, He says, for God, and you probably know this verse, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And it goes on. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So we usually stop there. But let's continue. He says, For whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment, Jesus says. The light has come into the world, And people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. And then a paragraph or a couple paragraphs later, Jesus sums it up when he says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So according to Jesus, the wrath of God is a natural outpouring of on those who do not believe in Jesus for salvation. Because God is completely perfect, holy, and good, there has to be a reckoning with sin in general and with our sin in particular. Now that reality of, of God's wrath coming on those who do not receive Jesus is a hard saying. It's a hard saying from Jesus, and, but it's not the only hard saying he said. He said. Uh, he had many more. And he lost lots of followers over the hard sayings that he made. And so just a few chapters after he kind of lays that out, um, he said some difficult things regarding uh, basically the nature of, of uh, his sacrifice and that, you know, to be a believer in Jesus meant you need to eat his flesh and drink his blood, which... You know, we we symbolize in the act of communion. And so he lost a lot of followers, and then he basically turns to his 12 disciples and says, are you going to go away too? And Peter voices what many Christians over the centuries have said throughout church history. He says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. So basically, Paul gives us two options in verse 6. He says, you can either believe empty words that says, you know, don't worry about sin, or your sin's too much for God. You're too much of a sinner. Or we can believe Jesus' words. Those are our options. We can listen to the eternal and true words of Jesus which give life. Now these sons of disobedience that Paul ends with, that's us. Or at least it's who we were. Back in chapter 2 in his death to life uh, zero to sixty uh, story of, of who we were and where we've been brought, we're put in that category of the sons of disobedience. Basically it's it's all those who are naturally without Christ. And then but that's who the offer is made to. So that was us, but not anymore. And we need only look to last weekend, to Easter weekend, to see that incredibly crazy threading the needle that God did. Our sin was significant enough that Jesus, the eternal Son of God, had to die to rescue us. That's, that's a big deal. The God of the universe had to experience death because of our sin. But his love for us was such that he was perfectly willing to. And Hebrews even says, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. So when Jesus thought of what he was doing and what it was going to accomplish, He's like, sign me up because that way I'll be able to purchase that person who is currently lost and needs a way back to the Father. We were worth it to him. Now, I've spent most of my career trying to participate and lend a hand to moving the needle on cancer, which we all know sucks, and it takes too many people prematurely It's an awful disease, and it's good work that needs to continue. But Jesus, in one weekend, defeated death for eternity, in three days. And he invites us into that reality, into experience that reality, and to participate in that endeavor, no matter what vocation he's called you into specifically, he's called you into this endeavor generally, wherever you are. I'll throw my lot in with him. Thank you very much. And you're invited to do the same. So maybe you read this passage and you feel a great deal of, of condemnation or shame because you are actively struggling with these things. But if you are consistently fighting and giving them back to Jesus, you need to reacquaint yourself with your status as a dearly loved child of God. Remember the picture of the father of the prodigal son. His son had taken his inheritance, traveled, squandered it, recklessly just blew his father off, and he becomes completely in poverty because of his own actions. And he comes to, he, he came to himself, it says, and he realizes, you know, if I could just be a servant in my father's house, that would be better than where I'm at right now. So he, he drags himself back, and he's repeating his elevator speech of, of what he's going to say to his dad. His dad sees him from afar. He runs. He disgraces himself as an elderly man. He runs and just throws himself on his son, he kisses him, he throws a party on his behalf because he was dead and now he's alive. He was lost and now he's found. That's how God feels about you. So if you're reading this and you're feeling shame or condemnation, then you need to remember God's grace. Now, we can't get away from the reminder that God takes sin seriously. So if, if you are reading this passage with indifference, It's probably good for you to read it in a sobering way. To realize God takes sin serious and he has opinions. (laughs) And like Justin said last week, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, nothing, this doesn't matter. But if he did, then everything we know is wrong. (laughs) And we need to be re-educated and reacquainted with reality. Now, true Holy Spirit conviction doesn't have to feel like condemnation. It doesn't have to feel like shame. It can feel like rescue. It can feel like freedom and relief. God cares about you enough and is powerful enough to actually help you steer clear of the sins that have entrapped you for so long and to help you walk in the good works He has prepared for you. There's a member of the Trinity whose job it is to walk with you every moment of your life to make this happen. That's resurrection power right there. And that is what Jesus freed up and offers. So how do we walk in love? We need to find our identity in the love of God as dearly loved children. We need to find our satisfaction in the love of God and we need to find truth in the love of God. Let's pray.